episode 175, a market access oncology trend report. Today, I speak with Paul Pachter and David Guy from Aventria Health Group. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today on the podcast, I speak with David Guy, SVP Oncology and Specialty Markets for Aventria Health Group, and Paul Pachter, SVP Pharmaceutical Commercialization over here at Aventria. Both of these gentlemen have extensive experience in leadership positions within the specialty therapeutics space, focusing on oncology and hematology. We talked today about the major trends in oncology, especially trends that impact how patients get access to some of the new innovative therapies and how much patients pay for said therapies. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. David Guy from Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, David. Hi, Stacy. Great to be here. Also, Paul Pachter from Aventria Health Group. Thank you, Stacy. Let's jump right in here because we have a lot to talk about. We're talking about oncology today, especially the trends affecting what we call market access or the way a patient can get the medication, something which is super important in oncology. How about we start with arguably the most exciting of the trends, the innovations that are going on? What do you think, David Guy? This is probably the most exciting time in the history of oncology treatment, what's going on the, the past five years and what's happening today. Specifically, tremendous advances in a general class that we're calling immuno-oncology, the activation of the immune system or using the immune system to fight cancer. There's a class of drugs specifically called checkpoint inhibitors or PD-1 inhibitors, part of that class, that have effectively helped the body activate itself against cancer cells and getting tremendous efficacy. A new, whole new class of uh, treatment called CAR-T or CART. These are chimeric antigen receptor uh, T-cells that are essentially living drugs that are inside your body that are fighting uh, a cancer against a specific receptor on those cancers and getting, again, breakthrough results. First product was approved last year, Kimria from Novartis. Precision oncology, another area where we were able through biomarker testing to identify the exact genetic mutations that are causing a cancer in a patient and being able to address that mutation with a specific targeted cancer drug. Again, revolutionizing treatment and personalizing it to a large degree. And then finally, the use and generation of real-world data and starting to see the application of artificial intelligence against that real-world data to help physicians in decision-making for specific patients. What do those innovations enable an oncologist to do that was previously unavailable? Like, how has treatment improved? Why does this matter? In the history of cancer treatment, once you, a patient has 
metastatic disease. That means it's disseminated throughout the body. It's effectively a death sentence for that patient that eventually the cancer will overcome them. And we've used chemotherapy as a, as a way of trying to systemically control that disease. But these immuno-oncology agents are showing efficacy results in refractory patients, keeping them in remission longer, potentially even long-term. And we're seeing dramatic efficacy improvements with CAR-T as well in patients with hematologic malignancies today who have traditionally had a very poor prognosis. So we're still getting changes in the fundamental efficacy and treatment and management of the cancer and keeping it under control. It's in effect... I can see a day when cancer may become more of a chronic disease rather than the acute prognosis that we see today with advanced cancer. Yeah. And then you also mentioned precision oncology and then real world evidence, which I also think should not be underestimated. It's been said for many years that, especially with oncology, it's a clinical trial of one. And I think, you know, mainly because the data just has not been available at a large scale in order to really be able to fully understand what is working and what is not working. And in the critical field of oncology, where really every day matters to get it right. There was a kind of a breakthrough moment when typically cancer drugs have had indications by the tumor type that they're treating, they should be used for. But the two PD-1 inhibitors now have an indication based purely on a biomarker status. And if you have that biomarker, then the drug is indicated for your treatment. And that's the first time that we have a biomarker-specific indication for cancer treatment. So over to you, Paul. What are the implications of that relative to patients getting access to these new and very expensive products? I think what you both covered is really good news, that therapy, the science is advancing and therapy is providing patients with new treatment options. With that comes hope and even the element of survival that's put on the table. However, the good news comes with some challenges, significant impact on the cost of cancer care. Some of the reasons are the list price of the launch drugs, combination of these drugs in therapy, and the other piece is that patients are living longer. So we're seeing evolving dynamics in terms of the decision-making and assessment of these drugs in how they're put on formularies and uh, become treatment options for patients. The marketplace is evolving in terms of formulary reviews simply at one time looked at simply efficacy and safety. There, the reviews right now are taking into account broader evidence. So there's a clinical assessment, the traditional efficacy and safety, but there's more of a rigor assessment going on in terms of the value. For instance, other components that are taken into account are net price, resource utilization associated with side effects, and then overall functionality. Is the patient able to get around, enjoy their family life, or are they bedridden? And the evolution can be laid out in probably three ways. We're answering three questions. In the beginning, does the drug work? And that was really the basis for evaluation. The next is the effectiveness. Does it work better than the standard of care? So that's more that comparative effectiveness research that we hear about. And then finally, the last phase is overall value. Given the efficacy, the comparative effectiveness research, 
is it now worth paying for the drug? And increasingly, those are the standards by which people are making decisions and by which the manufacturers of these drugs, as well as clinicians and patients, have to bring the evidence forward to support the positive assessment and gaining access to these innovative therapies. And is that also the case with Medicare? And I say this because it's a pretty well-known fact at this juncture that Medicare is not able to negotiate prices and also they're not allowed to deny anyone oncology care. So how does what you just said alter in the case of Medicare? Medicare increasingly is looking to shift their focus of reimbursement for the traditional uh, volume or fee-for-service to more of an outcomes-based method. And one of the areas David brought up is the CAR-T inhibitors. And Medicare has actually entered into agreements with a couple of manufacturers for outcomes-based contracts because these gene therapies, if you will, represent a one-time cure. However, they come with a significant price tag. So these personalized uh, one-time cures, they're looking for outcomes-based payment. So if the drug doesn't work or payment is given for a drug, if the patients respond to the first month of therapy, and increasingly payers are following this, looking for different mechanisms such as payment over time, creating risk pools. And this takes into account changes patients moving from employers or changing insurance coverage. So in short, Stacey, what you brought up is not only commercial payers, but the large Medicare payer looking for different reimbursement mechanisms in the shift from fee-for-service to more of an outcomes-based approach. And I'm going to direct this to David, I think, first. Relative to those outcomes-based contracts, and it's interesting that you brought that up, Paul, because that was going to be my next question, you know, whether that's going on kind of at scale, out the outcomes-based contracts. But I'm pretty sure that with those CAR-Ts, biomarkers are a big deal. The drug doesn't really work unless the biomarkers line up, which means that in order to pull off an outcomes-based contract, either pharma or the payer has to be really good at biomarker testing, in addition to kind of all of the logistics that go around tracking outcomes. How are we doing here? I don't think anybody's doing outcomes-based contracting at any kind of scale at the moment. The efforts that are being implemented in the market today are things like the oncology care model under Medicare, where they're putting essentially episodic payments and putting two-sided risk model for treatment and management of patients, two-sided meaning that if the physicians can improve quality and lower cost of care, they benefit, and the converse being true. And we're seeing a number of commercial payers also adopting some of these episodic models as well, based on some research that was done by United Healthcare Group around an episodic payment model that uh, seemed to be effective. But risk-based contracting itself, I don't think we're there yet in oncology by any means. It's more around sharing risk for quality, cost, and outcomes. What do you think of that, Paul? Yeah, I agree with what David's saying. And the idea of risk-based contracts, there's a couple of parameters when you're looking to develop and entering it is that you need a clear endpoint. This endpoint is easy to find. 
And you can find this endpoint in a short period of time. Sometimes this is a challenge with cancer because you're talking endpoints such as progression-free survival, which is harder to measure as well as find in a patient's record. So we're seeing what David had mentioned is probably the first ring of the ladder is episodic care or paying for episodes of care. The other thing that payers are discussing, however, we're clearly at the infancy in terms of being able to implement is indication-based pricing because we heard a lot of these drugs work across a variety of different tumor types, but their efficacy may be different across the tumor type, whether it be lung cancer, breast cancer, etc. And so the payer is saying, I'd like to pay based on indication because of what relative to the clinical data and the value that that brings. However, that kind of pricing is challenging with some of the regulatory requirements in the marketplace. So are they pulling it off given the regulatory requirements or is this something that payers are asking for and no one can figure out how to accomplish it? I think it's payers are asking manufacturers are addressing. And in fact, this is one of the things that has been proposed in the changes of some of the Part D legislation that has been put forth by the administration in terms of restructuring payments. And how does that or how would that affect the price a patient pays? If the price that a patient is paying is based on the price that the payer is paying, that could also be interesting, yeah? Typically, under Medicare patients, they have either a 20% copay or most patients have some kind of supplemental insurance policy. That's for injectables under Part B. And then the orals, it's going through the donut hole under Medicare uh, Part D, and then it's a, a nominal percentage. But these drugs are extremely expensive. So even 5% of a couple of hundred thousand dollars starts to add up. What do you think of that, Paul? No, I I think those are all the realities that are going on. So clearly, if a drug is cheaper based on an indication, the out-of-pocket for the patient would obviously be cheaper. And some of the proposals for 2019 Medicare has little changes going on in terms of less patient responsibility in the donut hole, that the manufacturer is picking that up. And a number of plans are entertaining or the legislation entertaining that the PBMs need to share the rebates in terms of lowering the cost to the patient at the point of care, whether it be the pharmacy or the infusion clinic. Wait a second, the PBM has to share the rebate? That is under discussion as part of some of the new legislation. Interesting. So if they're going to share the rebate, then they have to publicize the rebate. I haven't read that far detail, much detail in <laughs> It's a novel approach that the country is waking up. How do we make uh, access to novel specialty drugs more affordable for the actual patient? Let's move on to a second major trend, therapeutic density. Paul, do you want to discuss? I think the point of that is that in the past, innovation would come one product at a time, and the manufacturer probably would have a lot of exclusivity in the amount of time that that product represented the standard of care. 
the specialty business and in particular oncology, there's so much being done in terms of discovery and innovation. So that window of exclusivity, if you will, that you're the only game in town has been shortened. I think an example there would be the PDL1 inhibitors. Yes, there was, you know, one, two came to market and they quickly, you know, captured a lot of market share, but there's a significant number from a number of different manufacturers coming to market. These drugs being used in combination therapy with uh, existing agents and being used across a variety of tumor types. And really the implication there is twofold is ensuring there's strong science and data and evidence to appropriately position those drugs in pathways or guidelines. Likewise, if there is no differentiation, it's going to be harder for patients to get access to these products via formulas where manufacturers will also be experiencing price pressure since there's no real differentiation of their drug versus standard of care. What do you think about that, David Guy? The interesting thing with oncology is you might imagine that if there's multiple drugs with the same mechanism of action, and Paul's right, there's three PD-1 inhibitors approved today, probably another half dozen uh, or more in the pipeline with various companies, is that you might say, hey, well, that's going to lead to pricing competition and lower prices. But what happens is that there's a fight for who can get the indications, whatever indication is first, second, third line by tumor type as fast as possible, because that sets a bar that after a certain amount of time, another PD-1 inhibitor would have to do a randomized trial against that agent to get that same spot and indication. And so that becomes a challenge to have multiple drugs in one indication. There was an opportunity in frontline non-small cell lung cancer. uh, Both drugs did randomized trials against uh, chemotherapy standards, but turned out that pembrolizumab won that. So they're going to be the the, uh, approved frontline and covered in treatment for frontline non-small cell lung cancer. But This dynamic that there's going to be multiple PD-1 inhibitors with the exact same indication is going to be not as common as you would think and less price pressure than you would have hoped for in a sort of natural economic situation. And how do biomarkers play in there? You said they've got the exact same indication. Does that include the same exact biomarkers or how do those pieces fit together? The PD-1 inhibitor and PDL one biomarker is... That's a whole rapidly evolving field because the technology hasn't been perfect around identification of that biomarker and finding a one-to-one correlation to the uh, presence of the biomarker for the drug. Now, in non-small cell lung cancer, PDL1 is a defining biomarker. Bristol-Myers Squibb forego doing PDL1 testing for that patient population in their trial. Many have pointed to that as a reason why the why the drug failed. So it's evolving and complex and PDL1 for a lot of the other indications isn't necessarily relevant for whether the drug's going to respond or not. We're still learning a lot and it's an evolving field to understand what biomarkers are relevant and the technology of the biomarker testing to be accurate. All right, so let's move on to our third major trend here, which I think, David, you alluded to earlier, evidence-based medicine, the pathways and the guidelines which are being derived from some of the real-world evidence that is being collected. David, what are your thoughts here? The market is trying to find a way to, as Paul's described, try to assign some value. The marketplace talks about 
pricing toxicity, that the cost of these drugs is getting so high that it is impeding physician utilization of them because of patient copays becoming an issue, essentially based on those prices. So we're seeing NCCN has developed evidence blocks to try and give some guidance. ASCO has a value framework to try and assess the value. And interestingly, only uh, a recent report came out that only three of the 23 PD-1 indications showed were positive under that value framework. And then Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, they developed a, a Bacchus as well. So we're seeing a lot of efforts first from the provider side and professional organizations trying to create a rule set for measuring value of cancer treatment, try and get a hand on it. And then we see third parties entering as well, like uh, ICER. But maybe, Paul, you want to talk a bit more about that? I think oncology uh, really represents a plethora of different approaches in terms of the pathways. You mentioned NCCN, ASCO, Memorial Sloan Kettering, U.S. oncology through their InEvent. And then it really gets to the point of team-based decision-making in terms of how the pathways are evaluated and then how the pathways are enforced to eventually be able to say uh, we're practicing evidence-based medicine. And by doing it in this way, we're actually improving outcomes and patient care. One of the things we see is there's no standardized approach. It's important for the end user or the team to know the basis around the assessment. So what is the evidence that goes into the assessment of a particular pathway? Is it weak? Is it strong? What is the process by which the pathway was developed? Are they or are they not measuring net cost to the system? And what's their approach for me measuring net cost? And at the end of the day, when they say these are the benefits that the end user has to know, what are the actual benefits that need to be interpreted and interpreted by uh, payers, providers, as well as the patient who's being pulled in in this at the end of the day. And I think ICER, which is probably emerging as a credible U.S. tech assessment entity, they're realizing this and bringing stakeholders together to have uh, greater transparency in terms of what goes into the actual framework. There's feedback sessions in terms of uh, being able to input into proposed assessments. And then the output of those assessments, I think increasingly people or especially payers or providers are looking to the output as another component and an independent component in looking to move the uh, needle more forward in terms of value assessment and tech assessment of new drugs and how they compare to the overall standard of care. What's starting to happen is that it's becoming a team sport where everybody gets together and they look at the new product and they figure out, okay, if it's a patient of this cohort, then we're going to do this first and this second or this combination of things first and then this second. Yeah, and I think the key which you're alluding to is, is team-based assessment and then a team-based approach to actually using it. But people have to be at the table in terms of the audience, what if they understand, what are we actually measuring, the elements that go into it, and then how, when you get the information, how do we interpret this, the results? And I think that's the critical thing for people to get buy-in behind the respective pathway, and then they actually use it measure it, and look to assess outcomes of care. So effectively, what happens next? And maybe I'll turn this over to, to David. If 
we have the pathway that's developed and everybody agrees on it. You know, it was a multidiscipline. There's agreement across the board that this is the best that we know at this juncture. How do people then use that pathway? You know, does everyone have a binder at their desk? I mean, how does someone know that ICER or anyone just cooked up a pathway that is now the latest and greatest? I was reading a report by the um, Economist Investigation Unit, and one of the things they point out in our in the U.S. healthcare system, in oncology, which is an issue, is the complexity of care. These physicians are overwhelmed with, you know, if this is a pathway approved for within their organization, do they follow that? You know, the payers have their pathways as well. They want patients to follow a certain route. They're creating incentives if patients follow that pathway, and it becomes very complex for the individual physician. It'll overlay that alternative payment model. So if you're operating within an alternative payment model like the oncology care model that I mentioned earlier, that episodic model, or if you're in an organization that's an ACO uh, where there are effectively incentives to reduce the cost of care while maintaining quality, that's another overlay. So <laughs> it, it's, I think, a real challenge for oncologists in this environment to uh, manage that complexity for each individual patient. Yeah, and considering, you know, so I'm just thinking of the Flatiron acquisition right now by Roche recently. But I think one of the things that just highlights what you, you've just said is Flatiron, which has been focused on doing organizing exactly what you were just talking about for I don't even know how many years, perhaps is a testament to the difficulty here. What are your thoughts on the implications here, Paul? David alluded to that when he was describing some of the issues across the different pathways and decision-making is complexity. And I think all stakeholders have to be thinking about how do you reduce complexity and not create more by trying to get to this panacea of evidence-based medicine. So really, I think a couple of guiding principles is what are we looking to measure that it needs to be that simple in terms of being able to find it get people behind it in terms of they understand, and you measure, provide feedback, and at the end of the day, you can actually improve on what you're trying to do. The other piece uh, we talked about was the electronic health record. Organizations are in vastly different places in uh, their adoption as well as sophistication. While everyone says we're on board with electronic health records, etc., there's an evolution. There's an evolution that starts in billing inventory management, then how do we begin to load protocols that are actually uh, being followed or these episodes of care? Uh, how do you measure adherence to the protocol or if there's uh, diversity from it, there's a rationale why? And at the end of the day, how do we feed this information back to the people participating? So that to me is really the elements that need to be addressed and by also uh, keeping an optic on how do we reduce the complexity of what we're trying to do, as opposed to making it more confusing that nothing gets accomplished. Yeah, I think overfitting is definitely a factor here, exactly as you're just talking about, Paul, that if it's too complicated, it doesn't happen. But I think a big opportunity exist to really impact the quality of care and the value piece of it through technology. You interviewed Ethan Bosch uh, in his patient-reported outcome study in the oncology setting that had a significant improvement in survival as 
biggest many new drugs by patients being able to report digitally from a handheld device changes in their health status or things that they're experiencing that would activate the care team sooner. So there, I, I think there are significant opportunities to really improve the value and quality of care through digital solutions. I would think that, you know, moving forward, exactly like you just said, David, Dr. Ethan Bosch, survival time increase was over five months, which is as much as some of these new CAR T's. <laughs> Astounding, merely by monitoring patient reported outcomes, which is what PRO stands for, there could be such improvement in outcomes in, in these endpoints. I'm going to wonder whether, given that, there's going to be a trend toward if you're an oncologist and you see that, I would definitely want to make sure that I'm incorporating these things into my practice. I wonder what the uptake is going to be there. The other thing that I would just like to say about EHR systems is that they're very well known to be very retrospective as opposed to prospective. It's really difficult to bend an EHR system to get the technology to make recommendations and actually be a clinical decision support system. So it could be interesting also to see whether clinical decision support overlays start to be added to EHR systems, you know, tools like PSYAPs. I interviewed the founder of PSYAPs also probably in 2017. It's going to be tools like that, I think, that might actually be a solution to some of this complexity. So let's talk about alternative payment models for a second, these quality programs. Any implications there that we haven't already talked about, David? I think we've covered them fairly well. I think there's still issues on working out the kinks in them and making sure that there's a balance between incentives for organizations and providers to reduce cost while improving quality of care and making sure that that balance doesn't go askew towards too heavily on the cost savings piece at the sacrifice of patient care, which I don't think will happen, but it's something that we always have to be mindful of. Anything to add, Paul? Really, the key here is as we look for a solution, it's not one entity that has the answer. It really takes in a collaborative approach across stakeholders in terms of uh, payers, both commercial as well as uh, government providers, pharma companies, and then also who has to be at the table is the voice of the patient. Thanks for bringing that up, Paul. Let's talk about the voice of the patient. How do you think that as a trend, you would sum up what's going on there? I really think we've covered some really important things about complexity. We've talked about innovation, cost challenge, decision-making process, and the group that's really the most affected by all of this is the patient. The complexity is that they're really frozen when you think about it. You've got the diagnosis of cancer in your family that leads to questions in terms of what's my coverage, whether it become, is it in-network, out-of-network? My doctor's in-network, but the hospital he or she goes to may not be in-network. What are the formulary implication of drugs and my out-of-pocket costs? And remember, we've just covered a lot of mind-boggling, great, innovative drugs. So could you imagine hearing these new mechanisms for the first time and saying, what are the expectations? What is needed? And so the short of this is that the patient is really very confused and providers really need to be helping the patient and caregiver that get better engaged in their therapy. And they need to be equipped with consumer-friendly drug, disease, and reimbursement services. Likewise, 
the appropriate use of these new agents really requires greater integration of care across payers, providers, and the patients. And so often we see it could be payers and providers are bu- and manufa- pharma manufacturers are building programs that address one issue or one need, while at the same time, some of the other things that are so important to appropriate patient care is left for the other person to grab or is not even being covered. So that whole element of creating a consumer experience for patient and caregiver has to be very paramount on the minds of everybody as we address innovation and access in an evolving marketplace. What do you think, David? I think the elephant in the room is the copay burden for patients. It's not only impacting their choice of therapies if they get therapy, but even when they do start on treatments, it has significant impact in, in adherence because of that cost burden. And honestly, I don't really understand why a copay is applicable for cancer patients. Creating any kind of second thoughts for the patient in in choosing their treatment selection based on what the cost burden is to them doesn't seem to be driving the outcomes that you want. You want the patient to be adherent, to be taking the therapy that the physician uh, thinks is most appropriate and and that they've talked with the patient with that follows pathways and everything that we've talked about. And a copay burden for patients just works against all those themes, in my opinion. Yeah, I interviewed Andrew Shore, who is the founder of Patient Power. And one of the points that he made repeatedly in his interview is that here you just got a cancer diagnosis. And if that's not bad enough, (laughs) you're being asked to make a decision, you know, do you bankrupt your family or get care for yourself? Yeah, and by copay, I mean also coinsurance, where, you know, still even under a good plan, you might only have 80% coverage, and it's still that's going to be an issue. Additional thoughts, Paul? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that we all should be thinking about that, as I've been involved in oncology for a long time and have learned, is that it's important for really all the stakeholders to keep an eye on what's the most important element. And that's the element of keeping an eye on the patient and improving patient care. With the programs, services, and everything that comes out of that, if you keep an eye, takes into account success of an organization, revenue, uh, etc. And to me, the element that creates the consumer experience that we should be thinking of is the patients want things that are simple, that are thorough. The key word here too is timely. It's not when somebody else wants to give me information. I want the information when I need it or my mind is ready to absorb what is being provided to me and I need to make decisions. So all of us keeping an eye on improving patient care and creating a consumer experience, I think is critical as we move forward. Yeah, and it's also critical not only from a, just a are the patient satisfied standpoint, but also from an outcome standpoint, because obviously the information that's being imparted is important information. And if we're doing it, you know, there's some statistic that if a patient remembers 5% or something, and I'm not knocking the patient here, I mean, you just got a cancer diagnosis. Are you actually absorbing <laughs> anything past? Stacey, not to interrupt, but, you know, there's confusion around. A lot of times physicians will report, you know, with this treatment, we can expect a response rate of 50%. But patients 
don't interpret that understand what response rate means. They think that means cure when the definition of response rate is, okay, 50% of the patients are going to have a tumor shrinkage of 50% or more or something like that. So it's, it's a matter of control and shrinkage, not survival. And that misunderstanding is widespread amongst patients. I hesitate to call it jargon, but it kind of is, you know, this terminology that we're all very familiar with, but that if, you know, you haven't been in oncology for 20 years might be foreign language. I just read this past week, When Breath Becomes Air, written by Paul Kalanathi. He was a neurosurgeon. When he was 36 years old, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. It is actually a very thought-provoking and harrowing account of one oncology patient's journey from diagnosis to, you know, he, he basically died before he finished the book. If anyone is looking for the voice of a patient, I would highly recommend that. Anything else? No, I think we've covered the landscape. As, as you can tell, it's, uh, I, I mean, there's a very exciting, optimistic side of uh, what's going on in cancer with these new treatments, but there are also significant challenges to making sure that uh, patients have access to those treatments. Yeah, I just want to say thank you uh, really to both of you. This was a very engaging and thought-provoking conversation. Much more to come with innovation and challenges. I thank you both for being on the program today. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of All of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.